You are listening to a broadcast of Dublin First Baptist Church, Pastor Cameron McGill in Dublin, North Carolina. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist Church and the Lake Church to hear from God's Word. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, one verse. Um, share this tonight uh, again um, in light of so much that's going on around us, um, in light of the, the situations that we're facing. Uh, but I just want us to think tonight on the subject, seven marks of an unhealthy church. And you say, preacher, that's kind of negative, don't you think? Well... You know, um, er, real early, uh, they came in, put this little gown on my little girl, and they, uh, they put a little IV in her arm, tiny little thing laying there in the bed. I've been to hundreds of those for other people's kids, but it's different when it's your little girl laying there. And the doctor came in and said, Leah, open your mouth real wide. The doctor looked in there and said, oh, my goodness, those have got to come out. Now, what if I'd have said, now, doctor, that's negative. That's just not good, doctor. That's terrible. How dare you say something? The fact of the matter was the doctor was just being truthful, and something had to be done. I am grateful. I believe we have a healthy church. I believe like every church, we're not perfect. I've often said if we were, I'd need to leave quick because of my imperfection. Uh, but I just wanted to share a few things tonight, and it's uh, based from a book that I, I read. In fact, I read it. Uh, through It's a very small book, The Autopsy of the Local Church, and uh, just helps us to stay focused. You need to look for the things that sometimes you get distracted by uh, to make sure that you, you see them coming and you don't go down those, those tracks. So look together, Matthew 16, 18. Jesus having a, a conversation with Peter here. He's asked Peter in verse 13. Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples, he said, Who do men say that I, the son of the man, am? Some said you are John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. In other words, they knew there was something special about this man, Jesus. And he said, But wait a minute, who do you say that I am? He's looking at the ones that knew him best. And Simon Peter, always quick with an answer, said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I also say this unto thee, that thou art Peter, translated Petros, a little pebble, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The word rock there uh, that I'm going to build my church on is Petra, bedrock. You've heard all of this, but as I thought about how this plays into the life of the church, we go back and we look, and there's a question that goes out. Who do people say that Jesus is? And, and today people would say he was a teacher, he was a, a prophet, he was a healer, he was a good man, he was a, whatever it might be. But the question is today, now think about this, who is the church claiming Christ to be? The world will only know the Christ that the church proclaims him and lives him out to be. It says here, when Peter answered correctly, 
only way Peter could know who Jesus was by the inspiration of God. Now, obviously, this is before the cross, before Pentecost. We are living after the cross and after Pentecost. So who identifies Christ in us? It is the Holy Spirit of God that reveals Christ to us and reveals Christ through us to a lost and dying world. But I submit to you that so many Christians in so many churches tonight are painting such a skewed and such a wrong picture of who Christ is that the world around us is saying, if that's Christ, I don't want any part of him. Think about this tonight as we look just simply. Seven marks of an unhealthy church. These may be warning signs that we need to constantly be watching out for, that we need to be uh, trusting God to protect us from, and uh, hopefully will be uh, some good and some solid preventative maintenance. You've got your little outline there. It'll help you if you'd like to follow along. Number one, nostalgia has become the norm. Nostalgia is the norm. Now, we are a nostalgic people by nature, right? We, we love thinking about the good old days. Um, many of us like watching the movies or listening to the music that we grew up around. Uh, I find myself a lot of times in the morning, I'll turn on my radio, my phone, and I'll listen to some, uh, y'all going to think I'm really old fogey for this, but I love Don Williams. I love... Tom T. Hall. Do any of y'all remember those people? Um, I love Abba. I love, and you know why? Because when I was a kid, those are the songs that my dad listened to. Forced me to listen to it. I can't imagine as a grown-up having the choice. Now I want to listen to those things. We're nostalgic by nature. But may I say to you that nostalgia is a very dangerous trap for a church to get caught up in. I'm grateful that at Dublin we've got so many people who, who by, by age would be considered senior citizens, but they are, are cutting edge in their mind. They're not offended by new things or by new people. They're not pushed away by, by new music or new trends or new styles of doing things. We're not so caught up in the nostalgia that change has become an enemy to us. If I were to ask you tonight, you might could say, well, I know of a church that's very nostalgic. They, they worship not in their building, but they worship their building because of the fond memories that they have. To this day, I can go into Schoolfield Baptist Church in Danville, Virginia, and instantly, by the very smell of the building, be transported back 35 plus years. And I remember what it was like to be a and to walk into that church. It's amazing that after all those years, it still looks the same. It still smells the same. The, the, the stairs still squeak in the same places. And I enjoy being there because it makes me feel very nostalgic. In the 21st century, the church has become a place of much nostalgia. Let me just say there's nothing wrong with having fond memories. And there's, you know, some people will say, when I look up there in the choir, I can still see my granddaddy or I can still see my husband. I can still see my friend up there in the choir. There's nothing wrong with that. I believe we need to appreciate those times and value them and, and think on them. But we cannot let nostalgia become the norm. I'm finding it for the first time in my life becoming very nostalgic 
I'm proud of the fact that I've been here so long that I have all of these memories. And and when these children graduate and go off to college, I can say, I remember holding them when they were babies and baptizing them and and going on their first ride with them when they got their license, whatever it might be. I'm very careful not to get so nostalgic that I'm looking back all the time and forget to look forward. The first danger we find, in fact, it can be the first step backwards is that step of nostalgia. Nostalgia will will put us in a point that we're afraid to move forward. We're afraid that we'll lose who we are, our identity or our personality as a church. But the fact of the matter is we have to remember that while the church is ours right now to be a steward with, one day if Christ returns, if Christ's return is tarried, somebody else will be a steward of this church. Did you know that? One day somebody will be sitting in your pew. One day somebody else will be holding your office, teaching your class, singing in your place. One day someone else will be standing in this pulpit preaching the Word of God. I pray you might not know it, but there's a Bible right underneath this pulpit. When we remodeled it, we put one right here so that whoever would stand in this place would be standing on the Word of God. But we're all temporary So if we get caught up in nostalgia, we're just fooling ourselves as if we're the end of the story. Now Christ might return tonight. He might return tomorrow. And we may be the last chapter of Dublin First Baptist, but we've got to live as if we're just another chapter that will be passed on to another generation one time. So beware of nostalgia. I know many pastors who overstayed their... I don't want to say they're welcome because sometimes they overstay their welcome after six weeks, but they've overstayed their effectiveness because they became so nostalgic. Does that make sense? It's okay to agree with me. That don't mean I, I think I've done that. I'm just saying we become so nostalgic. God, I love these people so much. God, I just want to, I just want to grow old with these people, you know. We need to make sure we're always effective. Don't let nostalgia become the norm. Number two, conflict with the community. Now think about this. When, when I use the word conflict, you're probably going, your mind's going in another direction. You're thinking about those knockdown, drag out business meetings you hear that other churches have. I'm not talking about conflict within the church. I'm talking about when the church conflicts with the community. When the church no longer looks like the community it's in. I'll give you the illustration that comes to mind is the church that I grew up in, the church that my mom and dad attend today. And, and if, you, if you go into that church, every person in that church is 70 and above. Every person in that church is middle to upper class. Every person in that church is Anglo. That means white. Most everybody in that church Uh, grew up in that community but no longer lives in that community. They've moved out to the suburbs or they've moved out into the country. They've moved to a more affluent part of town. But because, going back to number one, because of their nostalgia, they drive back into that old mill community and they attend the church they grew up in and they're sparsely sitting across this beautiful great big sanctuary. But if you go outside the doors and walk down those steps and turn to your right and begin going down that mill hill, you'll not 
find 70 up. You'll not find white. You'll not find uh, middle to upper class. You'll find people who are uh, African American, Hispanic, um, people that are from uh, the Middle East and all kinds of things. You'll find young families with children. You find a great mission field around the church. I mean, there's houses everywhere, but the church no, no longer relates to that community. There's a conflict between church and community. Now, the church has a choice. They can bar up the doors and the windows and say, we like our little group and we're not going to reach the community within us. Or we can say somehow we're going to attract other people from other parts of the community to come over here into this poor section, into this old mill community, which they're not going to do. Or they say, you know what? Just like a missionary, when they land their plane on the mission field, we have been placed here in our mission field, and we've got to reach out to our community and not be offended by the culture around us, but love them and embrace them and welcome them and try to minister to them. And Paul said, for the sake of reaching them, I've become as they are. That means I've got to look at things from their perspective. Many of us tonight would feel very uncomfortable going into... Uh, a church of maybe another denomination or another culture, we'd say, I don't feel like I really belong there. And in many of our communities, people that live in those communities, when they come into our churches that are still living like it's 1955, people say, I just don't feel like I belong there. And the folks that have been in the church all their life say, I don't know why visitors don't feel welcome. We sure feel welcome here. Well, of course you do. You've known everybody in the room for all your life. The church needs to realize that our communities have changed. And that doesn't mean we compromise the truth. That doesn't mean we compromise our beliefs or our standards. But we do realize that we are now placed in a different mission field than we were 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. Someone visited here not too long ago and they, they hadn't been in the church in many years. And they said, I didn't know anybody here. And they said, but that's okay. That's okay. We need to be more intentional today in reaching those around us, making sure that we're not just a church for us. Uh, a buddy of mine, Jeff Eisenhower, up in, up in Fayetteville, said this a while back, and it really stuck with me. He says, um, Aaron Lake Church that he pastors, he said, we've become a great church for people looking for a great church. But there's a problem with that. He said, because we're supposed to be a church that's outreaching lost people, not just a church that offers a product that attracts saved people. Now understand, I'm grateful when people move into our community and they're saved and they come here and they're fed and they want to plant their roots and get involved. But we need to understand that the culture around us is now our mission field. How hypocritical when we take a group and we go to New York City and we try to reach Hispanics at Nueva Vida and yet we don't reach them here. How hypocritical when we go on the foreign mission field and we're reaching foreigners and yet foreigners are living in our own community and I'm not over knocking on their door trying to reach them. How hypocritical when we collect our, our offerings and we give to the cooperative program to go and evangelize people of other colors and yet we act as though they belong in their church and we belong in ours. And again, I don't think that's the heart of this church at all. But by and large, it is. Most churches in America, especially in the southeast, are, are by and large very segregated. 
Everybody looks the same. Everybody acts the same. Everybody, you know, roughly is of the same socioeconomic level. And let me say that's been one thing that's always blessed me. Now, not only about Dublin, but the Lake Church as well, is we have folks that are very uh, wealthy. Good to have you back, Larry, from Florida. Great for, I'm a Texas. Good to have you back. And, uh, and folks that literally uh, struggle at the end of the month just putting food on the table. And it works, and I'm grateful for that. I'm thankful that when people of another color come into this church, they don't feel ostracized. I'm thankful that when Hispanics come into our church, they don't feel like they're all alone or not welcome. And I pray that we'll become more intentional about that. And I'm not talking about targeting any one group. I think sometimes churches get that idea. We're just going to go out and we're going to reach a group of a certain group and we're going to bring them in to make ourselves feel more diverse and more good. No, I'm just talking about representing Christ and that will be absolutely magnetic to people who absolutely desperately need Jesus. Number two. Two, conflict with the community. Number three, the third mark of an unhealthy church, our commission has become our omission. Our commission, that's got two M's and two S's, becomes our omission. That's got one M and two S's. You don't need me to expound on this, and I certainly uh, fall guilty in this. How significant a part does evangelism play in our day-to-day ministry? If I were to take you right now to five churches that I can name and you know them all that are in conflict, not one of those churches are having special business meetings to determine why they're not reaching more lost people. Not one of those churches are having conferences on how to be more uh, intentional in their soul winning. Not one of those churches is is spending hours before the Lord praying for a harvest of souls in this season when the laborers are few and and the fields are white. But we're divided over music, over methodology. We're we're divided over roles in the church. We're divided on who's been there the longest and who gets to call the shots. We're divided by all of these things to where the commission has become an omission. And listen, friend, every one of us, it's not about the church being intentional in its evangelism. It's about the church members, each of us, saying, I am going to be intentional to share my faith and to show Jesus to people and to to do my very best. A man told me the other day, he was at one of our restaurants, and this is a man that's fairly wealthy, and it's it's not Larry, it's another one. And... uh, he said, I, I, we got done with the meal, had a meal, we had appetizers, we had everything, even had sweet tea. And uh, he said, so the bill was fairly you know, large, and he said he reached in and he didn't have his wallet. And he thought, that's okay, my wife's got her pocketbook, she'll have her debit card. And he said, honey, where's your pocketbook? She said, I left it at home, I didn't figure I needed it, we're just going out to eat. And he thought, what am I going to do? The waitress came over and he started talking, noticed she had a, a cross necklace and he said are you a, are you a believer and she said well I, i'm trying she said I, I really haven't been doing so well and began engaging him in conversation he began witnessing to her and before the end of the conversation she had agreed to come and visit the church with him the next sunday which she did and um ended up allowing him to go home and call back with his credit card number and pay for the bill which i'm glad he did and didn't forget that would have been really really bad But he said, you know, I believe the Lord just caused me to leave my wallet at home so I would engage her in conversation. I said, that's great. He said, no, it's not. He said, because I shouldn't have had had to have something like that happen 
for me to engage her in conversation. He said, the reason I asked her if she was a Christian was because I was trying to find an open door so I could explain to her that I didn't have any money, I didn't have my wallet. Would she trust me as a believer to go home and call back? He said, but I should have been looking for every moment and every opportunity. And as this 80-year-old man was telling me this, I thought to myself, well, how many times do I go to a restaurant and I'm more concerned about whether my tea glass is full or whether my steak is cooked right or or whether my service is like it ought to be rather than saying, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to pray and be intentional in loving these people and sharing Christ. Listen, individually, God has given us opportunity after opportunity every single day. And we must make sure that our great commission is, is intentional within each of our lives, but also as a church. How important is the Great Commission in the church today? I mean, really, most pastors spend all of their time trying to care for the sheep that they have no opportunity to go and reach the ones that are lost. It becomes an overwhelming responsibility just caring for the flock that we already have. And, and I must admit there are times, and I am just exposing the, the probably the worst part of my heart tonight. There are times when people begin coming to the church and we're seeing growth and I become even more intimidated because with every person that walks through the door, I realize that's another person to care for and another family to try to minister to, which I love and I won't do, but it becomes overwhelming at times. And that's why we have the office of deacons and other care teams and things in our church that we need to become more intentional. Um, You know, when we talk about that, and every year I usually preach a message to our deacons and talk about deacons coming, you know, on board and being more of the servants within the church and ministering to people, our care teams getting out and ministering. They say, well, it sounds like to me the preacher just doesn't want to go visit. No, absolutely not. It's not that, but the preacher also wants to be very intentional in making sure we're out not just caring for the flock, but reaching the lost, reaching the lost. You've heard my illustration a hundred times about the little boy that had to be told by his granddaddy that what we do in the barn or our chores, it's what we do in the fields, truly our work. Our commission has become our omission. Number four, we need to move quickly. I've got a little girl at home that wants some mashed taters. Number four, prayer is no longer primary. Prayer is no longer primary. God has proven this this week to me, and I can't tell you exactly how I'll tell you in the next couple of weeks. Because I don't, I, I, A, I don't want to spoil it, and B, I want to share it on Sunday morning. But on Monday morning, I, I've been challenged Sunday to turn some things over to the Lord in prayer. And Monday morning, really early, I just absolutely did. I said, Lord, I'm at the end of me. I don't know how to handle a couple of these situations. Lord, you've just got to take it, and Lord, you've got to, you've got to handle it. And within a 24-hour period, God had done some things that absolutely only He could do. Aren't you excited to come back for the next couple of weeks? I'll share uh, Sunday here, uh, one of those things, and I'll share Sunday week on July the 1st at the lake, one of those things. And I promise you, when you hear it, you're going to go, wow, isn't God good? Prayer. Where does prayer fit into the life of our church? Prayer in our nation has become an emergency tool, like a, a spare tire or flashers we keep. If there's an emergency, we need, to, we, we, we need to go to prayer. I mean, everybody believes in prayer whenever there's an emergency. The most, uh, you know, uh, ungodly of our nation's leaders, when there's a need, they call everybody to prayer. 
And the church has become to the point that prayer is something we begin a service with and we end a service with and we might tuck one in the middle. But but really and truly are we people of prayer begging God week to week. And listen, I want to tell you, I know when people are praying for me. There is a strength that comes over me when, and, and sometimes I'll not even know it. There's a sweet little lady that I met a couple of weeks ago and I'd only seen her once or twice and she walked up and she took her hands and did like that. That's kind of intimidating, but older ladies can do that if they want to. I didn't know if it was going to get slapped, kissed, what? I wasn't sure. And she held me and she said, I am praying for you every day. And she said it with such energy and fervor, I realized she meant it. She absolutely meant it that she was standing in the gap between me and an almighty God petitioning on my behalf. And that means so much. You know, we we discount prayer. In fact, we say things like this. Well, all I know to do is pray about it. Well, I guess we're going to have to pray about it. Like as if we don't have confidence in prayer. I do not fully understand prayer. I don't know why God wants me to tell him things that he already fully knows. I don't know why he wants, to ask, he wants me to ask him for things. The Bible says we look, we look through a very dim glass right now. We'll never fully understand it. But look at all that takes place in the Bible when it says, and they had made an end to praying, and they had been praying all night, and prayer was made for the saints, and prayer and supplication over and over and over again. And it always proceeded a great move of God. What's it going to take for revival to break out? You say, well, I don't know. Maybe it's time for a new preacher. Maybe it's time we sing new music. Maybe it's time for new programs. I'm going to tell you what it takes. A move of God that only can be instigated by the people of God and powerful and passionate prayer. And I know that it's got to be, it begins with the shepherd. It begins with the one behind the pulpit. And by nature, I'm a doer. I'm a roll up your sleeves and make it happen kind of person. And and I realize that when I do that, I'm setting myself up for failure because anything that I might build or create or begin will fall for sure unless it's built on the solid foundation of, of the gospel of Christ and the power of prayer. Prayer is no longer primary in the unhealthy church. It has become secondary. Number five, let's move through these last few real quick. There has become a vision shift. I don't want you to miss this part. A vision shift from the primary to the peripheral. The primary to the peripheral. What do I mean by that? And we'll talk a little bit more about this on Sunday. The primary is keeping our mind and our heart and our eyes focused on what God's doing. Where God is at work, experiencing God. Henry Blackaby, look at where God is at work. The peripheral are all of those issues and those things that distract us. All of the things that get in the way of the primary. All of the things that cause us to take our attention and our focus off of where it needs to be. Those peripheral things are what is dividing churches today. And and I've had church leaders in this community call and say, Cameron, we need help. We need need this and we need that. And I say, no, you just need to get back to the Bible. You just need to get back to the Word of Almighty God. And and I want to tell you, you know, whatever God has done in our, our tenure here, if you want to look at why it's happened, it's because of the Bible. When we preach the Bible, the Word never returns void. When we govern by the Bible, it will always succeed. When we live by the Bible, it will always be a blessing. But when we strive to be obedient to the Bible, there will always be great reward. We need to keep that primary. It would be very easy for me on a weekly basis to become so distracted by the peripheral 
that the primary become out of focus. And before you know it, when the primary is no longer in focus, you wander from one side to the other, being pulled in so many directions that God can no longer bless the church or use us to do anything of kingdom good. Number six, family feud. In other words, when the church of God is feuding and, and this is happening, it is so painful. So very painful. I'd ask you to pray for David Foster, our director of missions. No greater friend have I. And David is struggling so much. He is brokenhearted uh, over the state of so many churches, not only in our community, but in communities around us. So many churches that are... Uh, and, and by the way, the world is looking. The world is watching. Um, I, I'm going to say this, and, and it... It was just a realization this morning in, in the very early hours. Uh, we were there with Leah, and she was preparing for her little surgery. And I don't know the state of everybody around us. I talked to a few folks, but by and large, people are coming in and out, the doctors and PAs and anesthesiologists and all the sweet people that were caring for. And they were the kindest, sweetest, most loving and most caring, most wonderful people, Cape Fear Valley. Dr. Francis was the doctor. And I thought, they have made me feel, and Leah and Tiffany feel so special and so welcome. Because it's an awkward situation. I'm not real big on doctors and hospitals. You know, they stick you. They hurt you. They do things, you know. But they ease that anxiety. They ease that uneasiness. You see, people that walk into the doors of our church are, are concerned. They're not sure how they're going to be received, how they're going to be treated. And they need to have that same welcoming, that same loving and caring and welcoming and warm experience that they're going to say, wow, I want to go back to that church. But many times before they ever walk in the doors of that church, they sit across a table from somebody who absolutely is ripping their church to shreds ripping a pastor or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher to shreds. My mama said a long time ago, if there's nothing nice to say, just don't say anything at all. That'll make a good Hallmark card. The family feud, and you've heard me say this, I'm going to harp on it probably because it's good stuff. There's no unity and there's no harmony. There's no unity, that's when people get along. There's no harmony, that's when people are working together. Family feud, so many churches today struggling with that. Listen, uh, again, I'm not saying this tonight I, I like glo gloating because we don't have this. I'm not saying it because we do have it. I'm saying it's something we need to be very, 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 very careful uh, not to get caught up in, not to allow the, the devil to have uh, even an inch uh, to begin to sow discord. And then finally, number seven, ownership dispute. Who owns the church? In so many situations, it's those who've been there the longest, Amen? You know, fellow told me one time, said, I was here when you came. I'll be here when you're gone. Bless his heart. Um, he's not, but anyway. Somebody say, well, I, I believe the people who run the church, who own the church, is those that have the most money and give the most money. I don't know if those that have the most give the most in the first place. Don't know, but no proof of that. The only person in the Bible ever honored for their financial giving was the widow that gave a penny, but... Somebody say, well, I believe the people who, who are there the most. I believe the people, I believe, well, and, and I know pastors who believe they own the church or, or, or leadership within the church. It's our church. Oh, it's his church. 
If I ever forget for a moment that it's his church, listen, I'm going to tell you, it's reassuring to me to know that it's his church. He's the one that birthed, uh, that, that birthed it through his death. He's the one that gave his life for it. It will exist beyond me. I will admit, I sometimes think that the church just would have a hard time existing without me. But the fact is, if I'm gone by tomorrow, the church will be here Sunday. It doesn't belong to me. Uh, you've heard me say this, my buddy Tom, that will... It's been here a time or two. Pastor's job is not to run the church. It's just to make sure nobody else does. It's good stuff. We need to make sure that God is able. And I just say this and I'm done. Preacher, that's kind of stern, don't you think? I would say 80 to 90% of the churches in America today, Baptist churches, are no longer owned by God. They absolutely are no longer owned by God. Somewhere along the way, he's been run off. His authority is no longer welcome. His word is no longer sovereign. His will is no longer adhered to. And I count it a great honor to get to pastor a church where we believe the word of God. We're not perfect. Heaven help us, we're not perfect. My, my. I hate to think I made a list of all the mistakes I've made just today. It'd take up two or three pieces of paper on both sides. But we're going to give it our best shot to be faithful, to be as healthy a church as we can be, both campuses and at the camp. And this is the way we're going to do it. I promise you, if we'll live by this, allow this to be sovereign in all that we do, let the Word of God rule, I promise you. He'll not only keep it together, He'll cause it to prosper. Amen? Amen. Father, thank You for Your precious Word. Father, it's not that...